So tonight, as I mentioned, we're going to be finishing the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 32, which is the song of Moses. And it is noteworthy. We've been in the five books of Moses. We began the first weekend of July two years ago in 2019. And so in a lot of ways, it's a very special night to be finishing the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Here on Tuesday night, it's been verse by verse. So we have literally through the last two years on Tuesday night, we've studied every jot and tittle of the law, of God's law, the books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And we finished that tonight, as well as finishing the book of Deuteronomy. So considering what we've all been through in the last couple of years, and even on a personal level, things I've been through, it's been a wonderful journey to have Moses hanging around with us for, for two years, uh, <laughs> leading us in the way for a good portion of that once we got to him there in the book of Exodus. So as we come to chapter 32, Moses has reaffirmed the law of God. He's about to step into eternity. He will in this text before we're done tonight. He's prepared the next generation. He's expounded on the law, Deuteronomy meaning the second law or the expanding of God's law that was given at Mount Sinai some 40 years before. And he, he, gave the, he pronounced the blessings and the curses. And now tonight, here in chapter 32, we have what's known as the Song of Moses, which really deals with the future disobedience of the children of Israel. But having been through the curses a couple of weeks ago, it's not quite as profound as the curses, but still strong. And it's a song. Sometimes we need to sing a song like this to warn us that though a nation go a certain way, individually we don't have to. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation, do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations... When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land, in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride on the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty stone, flinty rock. Courage from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and the rams of the breed of Bashan and goats. With the choicest wheat and you drank wine and the blood of grapes. But Jeshurun, which is another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. And then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocations of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see 
what their end will be. For they are perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn in the lowest hell. It shall consume earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy them. There shall be terror within for the young man and the virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversary should misunderstand, lest I should say, our hand is high, and is not the Lord who has done all this. So let's pause there, the first part of the song, these first 27 verses. There's a lot here. Again, contextually, it's God speaking to Israel about their future. It's a song about their future and the diso- what the nation would do and the disobedience of the nation of Israel and the consequences of that would be. And we know from the continuing historic books of the Bible that these things did come to pass this way. Obviously, there's a lot of application in these passages that we just read that would maybe be like a negative that you look at a positive. And I would like to look at verse 20 to do just that. He talked about a future generation. He said, I will see their, I, I will see what their end will be, for they are perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. It kind of goes together when you when we think of perversity and all the broad scope of what that could mean in our minds, but faith and perversity would never go together. Because perversity creates a, a seared conscience, like Romans chapter 1 tells us. Whereas faith produces holiness and a good conscience. Like Paul said, I've aspired to live for the Lord with all good conscience before God and men. Faith and good conscience go together. Faith and obedience go together. And so really, a generation would arise, that Moses says here by the Holy Spirit, that was very perverse in their ways and had no place for faith in God. They would serve false gods. They would worship demons. And here, really, we see in these 27 verses what would be the demise of a nation and a people who move toward evil. And this is human history, not just what we've seen in our own country of late, but really, this is what's happened to so many nations of the past. How are nations world powers at a time for maybe 100 years, now they're nothing. It repeats itself over and over. Like, you've never really studied human history. You need to understand, and we should understand, there have been great kingdoms that have come and gone, and they're nothing now. The people are nothing. Their descendants are nothing. And America could just as well be the same given enough time to have been another great kingdom in human history that became nothing, reduced to nothing. That's just the way it goes in the human experience. Most of us won't live to see whether how that plays out, or God forbid we do. But in the end... It's, as we've been saying going through all these books, that it's not so much about the nation, about the individual in the nation and how they choose to live their life and what they choose to do. Which brings us back to faith. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? That's what Jesus said. That's red letters in your New Testament. So in talking about his return, he says to be watching, to be ready, but nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? That Jesus is coming again 
is just the clearest doctrine of the New Testament and the Bible itself, even as the gospel of grace is and being saved by faith through grace. For all the subdivisions of interpretations, what we call eschatology, the return of the Lord, there can just be no doubt that Jesus is coming back. What the details look like on that are subject to scrutiny and debate by different groups of people in human history, church history. But there can be no mistaking that Jesus is coming back. The Calvary Chapel movement was founded upon the driving mechanism and conviction of the Calvary movement is Maranatha, that the Lord is coming, and he's coming back soon, which is biblically sound because Jesus said to be watching and to be ready. And since no one knows when the Son of Man will return, however it looks, we're told we don't know. We're told to be, the church is told to be watching and to be ready. That's what our expectation is. We're watching for the return of the Lord, and we're ready for the return of the Lord. We're like a servant who's waiting for his master to return, and we're being faithful with what he's entrusted to us. And in doing so, faith is critical. Because Jesus said, nonetheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? So we need to look at faith for a moment here, because we don't want to be the children of whom is no faith. What a, what a tragic text that is, right? Just think of that phrase, children of whom is no faith. We want to be people of faith to the end. Now we're told that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. So faith has a hope based upon something declared that's believed in but not yet seen. Because once you can see it, touch it, manipulate it, or control it, there is no more faith. We're told that humanity has always been saved by faith. Because we're told without faith it's impossible to please God. And thus we learn that the first act of faith for all humanity is believing God's revelation that we're created with purpose, that he made everything out of nothing. That's Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the elders believed in the ages that God created the universe with design and order, not dumb luck. So first act of faith is is a creationist worldview with order and design according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the rest of the Bible. We just even saw right here in the text how when he separated the sons of Adam, why would it say that? Because Adam is a real person, and he had real sons, and they were separated. And we're descendants of the sons of Adam, for in Adam all sin and all die. But in Christ the second Adam are made alive. That's the first act of faith is believing the biblical account of creation of our origin. Hebrews 11. The second example of faith is Abel, who brought a more excellent sacrifice. And Abel brought, came by faith, and he brought the lamb, so he brought an a substitute, a propitiatory offering, something in his place, something, since the wage of sin is death, somebody has to die or something has to die for sin. And so Abel, the son of Adam, brought the lamb, which would imply blood and the sacrifice. His brother Cain, of course, brought vegetables of the earth and God rejected it. It was devoid of blood and it was devoid of faith. Abel brought with blood and faith. For Hebrews 11 tells us by faith, and he offered up a more excellent sacrifice. And that's the difference right now on this planet between people who say they know God and aren't under the blood or are offended by the blood and aren't saved by grace and aren't willing to stand for the truth of God's word and the person and the work of the coming King Jesus Christ. There's always religious people. There's always people who claim to know God, who attack and persecute people who truly do know God. That's what Cain did. So there's always children 
devoid of faith who attack and persecute the children who are of faith. That's the entire biblical record. That's how it goes through the Bible the whole way. And it started with Cain and Abel. So faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. It's believing a message. So the faith that Adam and Eve needed was, this is the tree of life, you eat from this tree, it's all good. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil, it'll be all bad. And all they had to do was believe that God said that. That's his revelation to them, and they could enjoy everything God had for them. Perfect humanity in a perfect environment. But they exercise unbelief. And thus it goes right through. We know that those heroes of the faith, Abraham, Sarah, and others throughout the Old Testament, again, they're there in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, but we're told that we're saved by faith and we walk by faith. So we're, we're told by grace you've been saved, that through faith, he, Ephesians 2.8. So we know that we're saved and we know our faith has an object. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So as we begin to put faith together, we have the definition of faith, we have the history of faith, we have the object of faith, Jesus Christ. We have the necessity of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We have the exhortation that when Christ comes for us on our last day, he will find faith. So we're, and we're told that we're saved by faith, and we walk by faith. That's what we're told. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Our faith has been built up. Two years in the five books of Moses, verse by verse and topically, my faith has been built up. I'm more confident than ever in the word of God as a final authority for all affairs revealed by God for humanity and the experience of humanity in time, space, and matter and everything he's ever made. So we're to be children of faith. And that's why even praying for Bobby tonight going for the Dominican Republic for ministry outreach is that we need to be people of faith. And faith has action. Because the book of James tells us that faith has action. Faith works. Not works of the flesh, but faith works. So we want to just remind ourselves tonight on this text that we should be looking for opportunities to exercise faith. We should be looking for new adventures in prayer, new adventures in the kingdom, new adventures in the church, new adventures for the lost of faith. We need to have our faith stirred up. We need to be stirred up. We don't want to grow fat like Jeshuan and be considered obese spiritually and esteem the rock of salvation. We need to have faith. So I give this thought to us before we move on to the second part of the song. Is that uh, William Carey, the first, considered the father of modern missions, he went to India in the early 1800s, William Carey, Englishman. He was the one who made that famous saying, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. He didn't actually say it that way. He actually said, attempt great things, expect great things, but the context was, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. And he went for it. I mean, he went for it. He got on a ship, and he went for it in India. And he had local government oppression, he had the British government oppression, and he made it happen, and he inspired a whole nation, a whole generation of young people to go out. So the Hudson Taylors and all those people, they came in the next 20 to 40 years on the heels of what he did. He showed everyone in the Western world, you can go for it, and you should go for it. That's why it's considered the father of faith. So yet again, I'm reminded, thinking about him tonight, that we need to go for it. We need to go for it. We need to think about seeing, believing God to do greater things than we've ever seen before in our personal lives with the people we love. We need to believe him for bigger things because 
he's worthy of that faith. And not arrogantly, but in humility, truly wanting to see God do greater things than we've ever seen before. And again, as we step into eternity or Christ comes for us, we want him to find faith in us and that we, he'll know we've been watching and we've been ready. And he did find faith in us when he came for you individually and me individually. And whether the church was ready or not, globally, we're ready. Because it's a narrow gate. So we look at this passage and I think, these, these poor people, decades later, centuries later, they were children in whom there was no faith. I believe that if we're people of faith, truly living day to day, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, I believe that if we're truly believing in God for great things and attempting great things for God, we need to do things that are beyond our control and capacity. We need to take steps of faith. Yes, it's scary. It is scary. But God's going to be with us. There are so many people checking out and unwilling to do anything for the Lord. Why shouldn't we be people of faith, men and women of faith, that maybe our greatest experiences of life would come in, for many of us, in the fourth quarter or second half, that we go for great steps of faith and, and attempt things. Wayne Gretzky said, you miss every shot you never take. And I think it's good for us to think about in the summer of 2020-21, individually, that we don't want to grow fat and obese like Jeshurun, but we want, or, and be children of unbelief, but we want to be people of faith and that our faith is growing and we're adding to our faith and we're building in our faith and we're growing in our faith. So I challenge us as we go forward in the second half of the year to have a vision for faith and to ask God for a vision for faith and to believe God for greater things and to let him do greater things in our life than he's ever done before. Now we pick it up in verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them Oh, that they were wise, they understood that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even as our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store for me, sealed among my treasures? Vengeance is mine, and I recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the thing to come hastened upon them. Let me just interrupt briefly before I read on. Verse 28, void of counsel, a nation void of counsel. That's what happens uh, when you call good evil and evil good, and that they would consider their latter end. This was going to be my topical the other night, and I chose uh, the Lord led me another direction. But it is good for us to always consider the latter end, not of our personal decisions, which is counting the cost, but more the latter end of sin and rebellion. And we're watching all of humanity go right off a cliff without considering the latter end of the decisions they're making and the direction they're going and what they're doing, and particularly here in our country as well. But it's worldwide. And we as the Church of Jesus Christ need to consider the latter end of the actions of what's going on around us in powers above us in the human experience. And we just got to keep ourselves in the fear of God and expectation of faith in the return of the Lord and to live like people who believe in the Lord's return and live like people who know he's the king. Because verse 35 says, the day of their calamity is at hand and the thing to come hasten upon them. And there's a calamity that's going to come upon this entire planet. There's a calamity that's going to come upon the state of California and the United States and these governments and these people that act like this and treat God's people like this and respond to God this way. 
There's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereby is death. And there is a calamity. We don't know what that calamity looks like, but you just can't, you can't do these things. And you guys know this. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. As we sow, we reap. And it can look like right up until the day that Noah went in the ark, people didn't think that it was going to happen. Like, literally until the day that Noah went in the ark. Until, it's, we're told in the Bible that until the day Noah went in the ark. They just continued on like in a stupor. But once it happened, it happened. And it's going to happen. They say in Second Peter, where is his return and the promise of his coming for things continue the way they've been since they've always been? That's what the world says outside these doors right now. Planet Earth's on the clock. Verse 36, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free. He will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. In other words, when you pursue false gods, let's see them deliver you in the day of difficulty. Verse 39, now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven, I say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and I will pay those who hate me. And he will. Verse 42. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders and the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He'll provide atonement for his land and his people. So eventually God will do all these things, but the judgment's going to come. And some of those old prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you see in Ezekiel, you see sequences of judgments upon the surrounding people, even on Israel, but in the end, Israel's restored. And when all this goes down on this planet, Israel is still there, and God has an unfinished promise to the nation of Israel and the people of Israel pertaining to the return of Christ. Verse 44. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command you, your children, be careful to observe all the words of this law. For this is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life, and by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. This is interesting where it says Moses, you know, he grabs... Joshua, we've already seen Joshua being, he's the new successor. And he, he, he grabs Joshua and he finishes the song and he says to the people, set your hearts. Like, can you imagine being Joshua? You're like, oh, that's an interesting song. <laughs> you're, like, you're just digesting, like, wow, what was he just singing? That's, that's very profound. Like, I'm leading these people. Like, you wrote this song, it's number one on the charts, and, I, and you're leaving me and I'm going to lead these people. And this is the song that we're going to sing. But... Again, we see Moses immediately goes back to the individual. Just do this. Do the right things. You and your children, everything will be good. Set your heart on all the words. So many people are cutting and pasting the words of God's word right now. We want to set our heart on all the words. Set our heart on all the words. That's who we want to be. Not some words, all the words. Verse 48. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain Go up this mountain of Abram, Mount Nebo, which is the land of Moab across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession. And die on the mountain in which you ascend and be gathered to your people. 
just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Or and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, and the wilderness is in. Because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel, yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there in the land which I'm giving to the children of Israel. So it's time to come. Man, when the Lord says to you, you're going to come here and you're going to die on this mountain, that's pretty, well, we're all going to face that day. It might come suddenly, and we don't really hear him say come, but if you're facing terminal illness or you're just breaking down and it's going that way, you can kind of hear the, the voice of the Lord saying, come here, and I'll see you through this. But the good thing for us when we go to that mountain, that we have the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the good shepherd comes for us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For your rod and your staff comfort me. He's going to come for us, and he's going to be with us. That's the beauty of us. So someday, yeah, we're called to this mountain. Someday we're called. Might come suddenly. Might come with a little bit of foresight of preparation. Maybe it's foggy at first, and then it gets clear. You know, if you're coming from Kansas to the Rocky Mountains, you can't even see them. And you're coming through the plains, and they get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And as you're, you know, on I-70, you're getting closer to Denver. You're about 50 miles out. You can't miss the Rocky Mountains. There they are. And by the time you're like... Whew. by the 30, what, 35, the other interstate that goes north-south. I mean, there they are, these majet, the Rocky Mountains. That's what it's going to be like when we go to the mountain of the Lord. We might see it suddenly. We might see it in the distance, but we're going. I often think what my dad thinks at 91 about when he's going to pass away. I was with my dad today, sitting on a park bench, looking at the ocean there on the bike path for a little bit. I'm not sure what my dad thinks. I talked to him. I'm not sure what he really thinks. And I wonder, like, what am I going to think if I'm sitting on the same park bench when I'm 91? That's, that's a day we all face. Moses is facing his mortality here. And the Lord says, it's time to go. And he's going to say that for all of us. And at the end of his life, God holds him accountable for consequences of not representing him properly. Of course, his, to whom much is given, much required. So Moses had a tremendous responsibility to represent the Lord before the children of Israel and he was supposed to speak to the rock the second time, and he struck it twice, which was like crucifying Jesus Christ twice, which was like saying the gospel's not enough. So he misrepresented the gospel in his ministry one time, and for him, it cost him. Yet, in God's mercy, he was able to see the promised land, and in God's mercy, of course, he went to the promised land in his glorified body. In case I forget, in chapter 34, to say this, we know in the book of Jude that Michael the Archangel angel contended for the body of Moses with Satan himself, which is a story that comes from one of the Apocrypha Jewish books, not in the Bible. So therefore, when it's referenced in the book of Jude, we know it's actually historical fact, even though it's not actually... So it's a historical fact, as quoted in Jude, coming from a book that's not canonized or inspired by the Holy Spirit, but is communicating fact of information, which then is used by the Holy Spirit in the book of Jude. So we know that when Moses died... His body was somewhere, and Satan wanted his body. And we know that Michael, the great angel, Michael the archangel, came and contended with the devil himself and said, the Lord rebuke you. That's all he said for the body of Moses. And then we know, 1,500 years later, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses appear in glory with Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he still got to the promised land, but he got there in a glorified body, which is very comforting for us because we may not get to the promised land on time, space, and matter, but we will get to the promised land with a glorified body because this corruptible is going to put on incorruptible, this mortal is going to put on immortality, this terrestrial is going to put on celestial. The glory is coming. 
And you might get some on this side, sort of, but <laughs> we'll for sure get it on the other side. Now, the next chapter we come to, 33, is the final blessings on Israel. So we just covered the song of Moses, and now we get these blessings of Moses, and we'll read the entire chapter right now. So stay with me. Just like a road trip. Here we go. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. So this isn't the song. This is the blessings. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and, and dawned on them from Seir, and he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with 10,000 of his saints from his right hand, came a fiery law for them. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hands. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your word. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, when the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Now, going over these tribes of Israel, he says this in verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. And this he said of Judah. Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hand be sufficient for him, and may you be a help against his enemies. And of Levi, he said, let your Thum and your Urim be with your Holy One. That's the, like the casting lots they had that the priest had. Whom you tested at Massey and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. Who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or his own children. For they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Remember, the Levites were the priesthood. And, of course, this is a blessing that they would continue to prosper in their priesthood that God had given to them and all that represented pertaining to Christ in the kingdom. Verse 12. Concerning the tribe of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord is his, is his land, with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep line beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious product of months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth in its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessings come upon the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull, and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with them he shall push the peoples to the end of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Remember, the tribe of Joseph was subdivided by the grandsons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. And they were large tribes, and they did do this as they settled in the land. Verse 18. And Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Isaac in your tents. They shall call the people to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas, of the treasures hid in the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the head of the people. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp and he shall leap from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, of Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessings of the Lord, possessed the west and the south. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of the sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil as in like olive oil, your sandals shall be iron and bronze, as in strength, as your days, so shall your strength be. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, the God of Israel, who rides the heavens to help you in his excellency on the clouds. 
The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. Then Israel will dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, in the land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemy shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. Well, this is a pretty, pretty happy proclamation, isn't it? It's pretty good stuff. You might have noticed someone's missing. Simeon is missing, the tribe of Simeon. Simeon, of course, got into trouble uh, back in the book of Genesis for a few things. And he's not here. Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, actually was merged with the tribe of Judah. They didn't even have their own territory when it went into the land. And that's exactly the way it went. In the book of Joshua, it'll address this with what happened to Simeon. So we'll get that when we get to the book of Joshua. I want to draw your attention to verse 16. Maybe you caught this when we read through this. And the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. This is an interesting merging of two different key experiences from the five books of Moses. First of all, Joseph, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the one the brothers sold into slavery, who went down to Egypt as a slave. We studied all that in Genesis And all that went wrong with Joseph, his brothers betraying him, deceiving his father that he was attacked by a wild animal, wherever Joseph went, he found favor of the Lord. That's what we're told. I actually just mentioned this recently in a study, the idea, the concept of the favor of the Lord. It's not a magic potion or like a rabbit's foot or something. It's there because we're right with the Lord. And God opens doors and he closes doors and we're trusting him to work things out. So you might be one of 30 people trying to buy a house and you're praying to the Lord for his will, which should be wise, and he opens that door and the sellers, they look at the 30 offers and they look at the video you sent or the letter you wrote, as it is these days for people that are trying to buy houses, you usually have to sell yourself to the owner to buy the house. And you would say, Lord, give us favor. But you'd also say wisely, if it's your will, because who can know for sure if that house is for you? We've had the Lord close the door on many houses for me and Jennifer, and he's opened doors on houses as well. But when we say, give us favor, like, Lord, we think this is your will, obviously we're up against it. There's, there's all these people. Like the house we got in Huntington 10 years ago, the house was on the market one day. It was bank-owned during the, the peak of the bottom of everything in 2012, and we looked at it. We put together an offer. The bank looked at three offers, and they accepted ours. And we'd be like, Lord, give us favor. God, give us favor. We love this cute little house on, you know, this, this, we love this house on Malloy Drive. Please give us favor. We, we'd love to have this house. And he did. That'd be an, I, I, the idea behind God's favor, that God gives you favor. Or your, your kids are applying for college, and they're applying for, you know, this Stanford or whatever. Like, there's a girl in the surf team that applied for Stanford and these other schools, and she didn't get it. I wrote her a letter of recommendation. She wanted to go to medical school at Stanford, and she didn't get it. But she ended up at uh, UCSD, so good for her. Our kids applied to many different colleges, and God closed the door on, on, he gave disfavor and favor. So the idea of favor is that God has given you favor in the eyes of your boss. You got a raise. You got a promotion. He's given you favor in the eyes of the admittance committee for the college. He's given you favor for the bid on the house. He's given you favor for this, that, or it could be anything. You're in love with her, but she's not in love with you. You're praying that God would give you favor in her sight. You know, suddenly she'd be Twitter-painted and look at you and think you're the hottest thing ever. It can happen. It can happen. It can go both ways, too. It can happen. 
It's favor. God gives favor. When someone looks upon you favorably to bless you because you're serving the Lord faithfully. So when God looks upon you favorably to bless you because you're serving the Lord faithfully. And that is what Joseph had. That is what he had in Potiphar's house. God gave him favor. And that is what God gave him in the prison for two years. God gave him favor. And then for running all of Egypt, God gave him favor. And the Lord lifted him up and God gave him favor. So when we think about this, it's really just a matter of trusting the Lord to guide our steps and make it work. You could imagine even like trying to get permission to start a church somewhere in Russia where the local civil authorities aren't favorable. And you say, Lord, we believe we're called to plant a church here and we want to do it right so God give us favor. And he can do that. That's what it's like. So we have the idea of the favor associated with Joseph because Joseph is one person we're told in the Old Testament in Genesis, he found favor, he found favor, he found favor. So it would make sense that the idea of that concept is associated with him right here. But notice who he finds favor with, the one who dwelt in the bush. That's Moses' association. God is the burning bush. Jesus is the burning bush. When God appeared to Moses, the burning bush, it burned with the holy fire not being consumed. Moses said, who do I say sent me? He said, I am that I am sent me, sending you. What's your name? I am that I am, the all-sufficient one. Then Jesus in the Gospel of John takes that title and says, before Abraham, I am. He's saying he's the burning bush. And they picked up stones because they considered it blasphemy. And why was Jesus crucified by the Jews? Because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the burning bush, God of the burning bush. God reveals himself in different ways in the Bible, right? We've already seen he's the rock, right? We already saw that, like the rock. He's your rock. He's the rock. The rock of Gibraltar or something. Rock. So God uses, he's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. God uses different terms to describe himself. He's the God of the burning bush. And God of the burning bush is where you take your sandals off because you're on holy ground. That's God of the burning bush. So now these two thoughts come together favor, like Joseph, from the God of the burning bush. So we'll just seal this thought of application for all of our lives. When God of the burning bush gives you favor, you got favor. And nobody can stop it. When God of the burning bush wants to give you that house, he gives you that house. When God of the burning bush wants you in that college, you're in that college. When God of the burning bush wants you to have that job, you have that job. When God of the burning bush wants that to be your OBGYN, that's your OBGYN. When God of the burning bush gives favor to you because he loves you, we're saved by grace, and he's a good God and he does good things, there's no stopping the God of the burning bush, ever. Our God's a consuming fire because he's God of the burning bush. So we're just reminded on this thought, this, this comment here for the house of Joseph. And Joseph was a fruitful bow. We saw that in the back end of Genesis, speaking about the life of Joseph and what his descendants would do. So I just remind us tonight that we serve the God of the burning bush. We serve the God of the burning bush. And uh, he gives us favor. It's never about what men do or don't do, humanity does or doesn't do around you. It's what God's allowing in our response through faith in him, what he's working out, and being able to discern which doors he open, which doors he's closing, and what he wants to do. Chapter 34. Short chapter, Moses dies. 
Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab, so he's on the east side of the Jordan River, modern Jordan, to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south, the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the total of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all signs and wonders, which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all the servants, in all of his land, and by all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. A couple things here. Verse 7, his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. I believe, obviously, if you live long enough, it'll all break down. But I do believe there's a way to live your life in the fullest capacity as unto the Lord. I think that, and I believe that if we're a spirit-filled woman and a spirit-filled man, and we're really keeping the Lord first, it's going to reflect in our whole life. There's going to be a health of mind, spirit, body, and soul. It's going to reflect in our whole life. It doesn't mean we don't get cancer and die from it. It just means that the eyes are a lamp to the soul, and if our soul is good, it reflects through our eyes. I've seen some very beautiful people in their last days reflecting the glory of the kingdom when you look in their eyes. Though the outward woman is perishing, though the outward man is perishing, the inward woman, the inward man is being renewed daily, and we're being transferred from glory to glory. So, as you get older, you think, what's it going to be like? Will the thing I fear the most come upon me, as Job said? And if I mean honestly, the thing I would fear the most would be not knowing who I am. Right? Like, full dementia would be probably the thing I'd fear the most. Like, it'd be really sad for my kids in their 40s and 50s to see Dad not know who he is and have to take care of him. And my grandkids not know my grandkids' names when they're teenagers. That'd be... That's, that's a pretty scary thought. If you haven't ever, I mean, I don't dwell on that thought, but like you said, what, you know, what would you maybe fear? I'd say, well, you know, there's different things you fear when you're 20 or 30 or 40, but when you're 60, that's kind of something that might come on your, like, there. But when I read a verse like this, I just think, well, God, I've learned in my own life that God's bigger than our worst fears. So whatever you could fear, God's way bigger than that. And whatever God allows, he has a plan and a purpose in it anyways. Who's not to say what he has, the plan and the purpose of it? Because for sure, when you step into eternity, you're, you're the full glory of who you're meant to be from the conception in your mother's womb. Billy Graham doesn't look 100 years old in eternity, and my newborn son that died doesn't look like a newborn in eternity. You're in your full glory of who you're meant to be. That's what it means corruptible put on incorruptible, mortal put on immortality. So we can't fear that type of thing, although we might think about because many of us take care of our elderly parents. I know many of you have taken care of or are currently taking care of your elderly parents. And so we see how that can go, and we go, wow, like, as much as we're empathetic to we're taking care of, we think, oh, that could be me. That is me. I mean, I got from 40 to 60 pretty quick. That's 60 to 80. That's 9-11 to now. 
That's when I'm 80. Same, same time clip. But I look at this text and I think his eyes were not dim, his natural vigor didn't diminish. So I feel like because Jesus says the lamp of the, the eye is, reflects the soul, I, I take confidence in knowing that if we're just pressing into Jesus every single day and that's who we are, that's who we're going to be in the back end on the last day. That's who we're going to be. I've had many people who tell me who help out with the elderly. When you sing certain songs or read a Bible verse, suddenly they, they might forget everything, but they remember that Bible verse and they'll start reciting that Bible verse. You start singing the hymns and all of a sudden someone was, you know, over here in a wheelchair sleeping in the corner and suddenly they're, they're singing the song because it's there. It's, it's who they are. We're in Christ. We're in Jesus. And though that word person's perishing, we're being renewed daily. Moses' eyes were not dim, nor did his natural vigor diminish. That's very comforting to me, and it should be to you too. Though the outward man's perishing, the inward man, the inward woman's being renewed daily. And that's something that we have control over. We choose to be renewed daily in pursuing the Lord. What else is there to pursue? What else would you pursue? We also see where it says in verse 10, and since then there's not arisen an Israel prophet like Moses. This gets my attention as well. Joshua is amazing, and the book of Joshua is going to be amazing. It's, it's hard to follow Moses. There are certain human beings, men and women, who have just been absolutely profoundly great with the Lord. Maybe they're very famous in their day, like Billy Graham. I mean, when Billy Graham passed away, there was such a sense of loss for the entire planet. Recently going through all the stuff in the shed, I threw away the newspaper headlines when he passed away. They didn't make the cut, but I looked at them and I let them remind me what the world thought when a man of character steps into eternity. Respect. Entire planet tipped their hats to Billy. There is no Billy Graham on planet Earth right now. Not even close. There's some great men and women, but no one like Billy Graham. And there's definitely no one like Pastor Chuck. There's no one even remotely close to Pastor Chuck that I can see on planet Earth right now. There's good men who are with Pastor Chuck that have the DNA of Chuck and his vision of ministry and how he did ministry in them. And they're good men. But they're not Pastor Chuck. It's a very special calling, right? But his, his sister almost died, and then the parents prayed. They didn't know the Lord of the Pentecostal Church, and then they got saved. The baby was made alive. Then Chuck was born. He was dedicated to the Lord, and he lived this incredible life. Like, that was really special. If you know Chuck's testimony, it's incredible. That's kind of one of my challenging things during COVID. I was like, there's no one that I can look to like Pastor Chuck. I was there on 9-11. They all came to the church. I was there at different times. Like, when there was a major cataclysmic event, people would go to Calvary Costa Mesa, and for another reason, we feel comfort because Pastor Chuck was in the pulpit. His, his presence of leadership as a pastor, Billy is an evangelist and also a pastor, but Chuck, and there's no one like that, and that can be a little disheartening. Now, this generation went from Moses to Joshua to Othniel to, like, Samson. <laughs> That's a degeneration. And you get cycles with generations. You think of some of the great political leaders in American history? Man, it's been a while. It's been a while. 
It's really special. But here's what I've been thinking about on this topic, and I close with this thought. No one's bringing Billy back or Chuck back or Vernon McGee. You have some pretty strong leaders like John MacArthur and people like that that are out there. But really what I've been thinking about is even if there doesn't arise someone like someone great that we'd look up to in the kingdom of God, we should arise and be someone people can look up to in the kingdom of God. That's what I've been thinking. We, you, me, we should be people that arise, that people can look up to for the kingdom of God. And we may not lead a planet like Billy Graham did or a movement like Pastor Chuck, but we're leading somebody because we're meant to lead somebody. That's the Great Commission. So what we need to do is look in the mirror and see a person that doesn't have to be Moses or Deborah or Esther, but just has to be the best version of them. Because being the best version of who we are in Jesus' name is exactly who we're meant to be. So as we complete the law and the Pentateuch, that's the final application. Because we're going to go to the mountain to die someday. And their heaven's gain should be earth's loss in that way. And we shouldn't be unsettled by if we think we don't have any influence or a minimal influence, but we should just rejoice that God loves us and he's using us to have any influence. People like Moses are very rare. People like Billy Graham and Pastor Chuck are very rare. People like Amy Carmichael are very rare. Elizabeth Elliot, they're very rare. We're not called to be them. We're called to be us and a spiritual version of us to be people that can lead and be great in that way for the influence that God's given us.